I remember the, the reason I found this book was when I walked into Parnassus and I said, I want a book that's fun and I love essay driven books. And they put that in my hands. They gave you that? They did. For fun? Okay. Yes. I loved this book, but it's a doozy. Hey readers, I'm Ann Bogle, and this is What Should I Read Next, episode 167. Welcome to the show that's dedicated to answering the question that plagues every reader. What should I read next? We don't get bossy on the show. What we will do here is give you the information you need to choose your next read. Every week, we'll talk all things books and reading and do a little literary matchmaking with one guest. Readers, I have a fun email to share with you from last week's guest, Tiffany. She says, Hi, Anne. I finished the third book that you chose for me just last week. They were unique and provided a very different read, but each one gripped me from the very beginning and I devoured them in just a few days. I loved Meet Me at the Museum so much. I think this was my favorite out of the three. I love the letter writing back and forth and the sweet, innocent relationship that developed between the two main characters. I also really loved Salt to the Sea. I loved having the story told with all the different viewpoints and the different characters, each with unique circumstances. It was tragic and gave me a window into the story of the Germans having to flee in the wake of the Russians invading, and I found that that was a story I had never really learned. I would like to know more about this, and we'll be checking out some of the books in the author's note at the end. The last book I read was Garlic and Sapphires. I just recently returned from a trip to New York, so I enjoyed that this book described so many restaurants in the city. Her characters were funny and enlightening in the way that they revealed her inner personalities. I found her job fascinating. You made perfect choices for me, and I loved all of them. We planned a literary society listening party for my episode. And I heard from Tiffany, that was a blast. Now that you've heard what I've recommended to Tiffany, go back and listen to episode 166 so you can see how we got there. That episode is called Just Don't Call It a Book Club, and you can listen to it wherever you get your podcasts. It's always wonderful to hear feedback from our guests and also from you, the readers. If you want to share your thoughts on any of our episodes, email me at anne at modernmrsdarcy.com. Today's guest, Erin Morris, has a truly heartstring-tugging story to share about the power of reading. She and her son are in the middle of tackling a massive book challenge this school year, and the impact on his imaginative life and her literary life have been no less than remarkable. If you have little ones in your life, just be warned, this episode is going to make you want to drop everything, pull them close, and enjoy a good book together. Of course, it's not just kids' books, and I loved hearing how Erin's big project with her son is changing the way she reads these days. We talk about making reading fun and stress-free for adults and about Erin's affinity for serious topics treated with respect. I also enjoy matching Erin with whimsical but never gimmicky fiction. Let's get to it. Erin, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you. I'm so excited about it. Erin, tell me a little bit about where you are in the world and what you're doing these days. Yeah. Okay. I am in Nashville and I'm a Nashville native, which it turns out is kind of weird these days. People think we're unicorns a little bit, but here in Nashville, I do um, a little bit of of work with families in trauma, particularly foster and adoptive families, working with them when they feel a little overwhelmed. And I have a five-year-old son who I adopted through foster care. I've had several, but he's the one that will be with me forever. It's the new year, and a lot of readers have what they want to get out of the new year, specifically in their reading life on their minds these days. I was so intrigued by your interesting and ambitious reading goal that you've taken on in connection to your son. Would you tell me a little bit about your 1,000 books? 
Absolutely. So when he started the school year and he's in a pre-K, a special needs pre-K class, we decided that we wanted to dive into books a little bit more because his imagination was just not where it would normally be for children his age. And a lot of that is due to trauma, but I just believed books could make a difference. So we decided to try for a thousand books during the school year. And I hoped that he wouldn't get annoyed with it, but it turns out he loves it much more than I could have expected. He's always asking for one more book. And as of today, he's at 803. We're about halfway through the school year. Wow. (laughs) So you are more than on pace. Yes. What's your reading routine like for those books? We read at night before bed. So most days he reads 10 or more. He loves it and just asks to go and go. And of course, we make trips to the library, gosh, every few days. I can barely keep up with him. Do they know you by name there? Yes. And thankfully, it's two blocks from my house. So I can walk really easily. And they kind of know what we look for. There's a lot of triggers we have to watch out for. We spend a lot of time. (laughs) Does that mean you read those books in advance before you read them with him? Yes. I read every book or at least skim through it Mm -hmm. at the library before. I read it to him. What kind of content are you looking to filter out? And is that difficult to do? What I find is a lot of readers don't realize how much a certain theme or topic is pervasive in literature until they're trying to avoid it. And then their eyes are open and they realize it's everywhere. Yep, that's it. You nailed it. I couldn't believe how many children's books are about somebody running away or getting lost or lost from their family and trying to find their way back home or moving, all kinds of things like that. They're everywhere. So I have to keep a really close eye out for that. You know, he already has a really strong voice in his head from years of trauma. And so now it's time to try to make a new voice in his head and, and new themes, helping him understand new feelings. So I really look for particular things that I think are going to be stories that I want him to remember because he does remember really well. He's going to know the person he read about and where they were. And I don't want him remembering things that are harmful. Of course not. Erin, you said that you thought reading these books would make a real difference in his life. What made you think that books might be part of your answer here? Well, I'm a huge believer in story. And what I was seeing from him and from a lot of kids who've experienced trauma But I don't think most people realize it is that reading and pretending and imagining are really vulnerable because you kind of have to let your guard down and stop worrying about whether you're safe and and what's going on around you and what you're going to have to eat and all of these things that are really top of mind for people that have come out of trauma where most kids would be able to let that happen and start just imagining kids like my son really have a hard time letting their walls down and that self-preservation instinct and being able to be lost in a story. So when he started to understand that, I mean, I couldn't believe how fast he changed. Within like a week or two, he was drawing pictures that he'd never drawn before and, you know, making scenes with toys that had previously just been like thrown at people. (laughs) Uh, Just understanding how a story happens and that he has the ability to make that happen. It was eye-opening. That's incredible. Just in a week or two. Yes, it was that fast. I remember the very first week he took some crayons and before that crayons were only ever helpful for breaking in half. And he (laughs) sat down and he made his dog with his head and ears and body and four legs and a tail, just like that. I mean, he had never drawn a circle. My jaw just dropped. I couldn't believe it. He wasn't just getting a love of reading. He was getting his childhood. He was getting to be a kid. It was amazing. 
Now, you work with families who are helping the children in their lives through similar situations. How has your experience reading these books with your son changed the way you help them? I definitely recommend reading really strongly because for children coming out of these situations, they can't heal or can't heal well until they feel safe and attached. And reading is, from my experience, one of the most accessible and successful ways to help them feel that. And it's calming too. I'm, you know, I'm learning recently like to read from one side of the page to the other and look and take it in. It's really calming for the body. So not only that, being together with their caregiver, um, imagining these stories That's something I recommend really quickly for for families that feel intimidated by these hard things. It's not hard to sit with the child. Well, I I shouldn't say that. (laughs) (laughs) It is hard to sit with children who are afraid, but it's one of the best ways to help them overcome the things in their mind that are holding them back. That's so interesting what you said. I hadn't thought before about how reading is very predictable, yet not at all at the same time. Yeah, it is. And children who've experienced trauma don't have the same abilities to understand stories as linear. Their experience causes them to feel like it's really fractured. So for my son, even though he knows that he's safe and loved now, and he's got a couple of years of that under his belt, he still has more years of his life being afraid. And so the part of the brain that would normally be well-developed by now, it can get kind of atrophied. And the other part that, that needs to be strong can be too strong. And it takes a while to just retrain that. So to see them start to feel feelings that they couldn't name before, it's really remarkable. Erin, this seems like an unfair question to ask, but mm-hmm. do you have any favorites of these 800-something books you've read so far? What stands out as memorable in your mind? Yes. Oh, easily. I don't know that he would say the same ones. The ones that he likes are the ones that have a very clear plot line. I am a huge fan of Oliver Jeffers, Peter Reynolds. Those two are are my favorites. (laughs) Oliver Jeffers and Peter Reynolds for you. I mean, do you know specific titles for your son or authors, or do you just know that he prefers books with more straightforward plot lines? I'm sure I can think of a couple. You know, Dragons Love Tacos. <laughs> That's always going to be a winner. One of our favorite things recently was that along the way, we've kept track of how many books he's reading. And we keep track of it on this huge poster board that I made that looks like a library card. And each week, he gets to pick out what his favorite was. And when we got to Christmas break, we had a collection of 20 or more books. And we went and checked out just those for Christmas week. So that was so much fun to go back and see those that had been his favorite. And certainly the ones with dragons or dinosaurs or underwear (laughs) pants were the favorites. I just listened to a great interview (laughs) with Dave Pilkey. I don't know if you read him with your son, but he said that an important discovery in his life was that when you say the word underpants, you can make kids laugh and (laughs) grownups mad at the same time. I'm glad you don't get mad about underpants. Oh my goodness. No, no. We we just take it as a chance to laugh hysterically. (laughs) I'm curious, have you noticed how your reading project with your son has changed the way you read for your own sake. Definitely. In the past, for years and years, my love of reading was with nonfiction that really challenged me. C.S. Lewis was the person that made me fall in love with reading as a teenager when I couldn't understand some of these fantastical things I was reading about, screw tape letters, 
that sort of thing reeled me right in and I would I would stay up reading that. So for years I was looking for things that were really challenging, really contemplative. And only in the last year or so, and especially with this project, I'm just reminded that it's okay to just enjoy something and think that it's fun, even if you're not learning something from it. The value of play, especially for adults, just can't be underestimated. So it's been fun to give myself the same permission to laugh at the kinds of things that would feel absurd <laughs> to laugh at. Just take in the whimsy. It's really fun. So you're reading more books about underpants these days? Oh, right, right. You know, I'm very interested in hearing what your equivalent is to dragons. If you're ready, you know how this works. You are going to tell me three books you love, one book you don't, and what you're reading now. And we'll talk about what you can read next for yourself. Let's do it. All right, Erin, tell me about the first book you love. My most favorite book, at least in the last couple of years, is a book called The Sacred Year. It's by Michael Yankowski. So Michael Yankowski came out with his first book about a decade ago, around the time I was um, wrapping up college. He's about the same age, and he wrote a book called Under the Overpass when he dropped out of his private Christian school and went and lived as a homeless person to understand that life for about six months. And I loved that book, but he didn't write anything else for a long time. So when I saw The Sacred Year come out last year, I was so eager to get my hands on it. And the years definitely served him well. It's remarkable and so much more beautiful than what I remembered. This book came after he had spent years and years as a Christian motivational speaker, going to colleges and churches and things, talking about that first experience. And he realized that he was just really burnt out. He couldn't quite name his own faith anymore, or at least had just become disillusioned. And so he set out on a year to explore some of these ancient and modern spiritual practices, all kinds of things like he walks alongside a monk and kind of puts him under himself under his leadership. He, you know, bakes his own bread and takes responsibility for all his own sustenance, lives on $2 a day, lives in a cave, watches an, an elderly woman dying, and all of these things where he's facing all these tenets of faith. And the result is so, so stunning. It's dense still, and, and there are no wasted words, which I love, but it's still lovely. I just wanted to savor it. And as soon as I was done, I felt like I needed to start all over again because there was so much to learn. I definitely don't like when books in this genre just say the same thing for 200 pages and make sure you've got like a very Instagrammable quote and then you're good to go. Mm -hmm. And so this one really leaves you with so much to think about. And I love how it's still this challenge, unconventional way of doing something, but that is accessible, but kind of out of the norm. That's really fun. Okay. Unconventional, but accessible. And I totally hear you on the 200 pages of the same Mm -hmm. thing. Oh, it drives me crazy. I will keep that in mind. (laughs) Erin, what's the second book you love? So the ones I thought of after that are when I first started to realize that nonfiction didn't have to just be contemplative and challenging, and it could just be fun. I remember one of the first ones I read was Tiny Beautiful Things by Cheryl Strait. You know, several different essays about when folks were writing into her under a different name, Dear Sugar, uh, not under Cheryl Strait. And she would reply to these inquiries. And some of it is hilarious. Some of it is so wise. I just ate it up. And it was the first time I realized that I could just enjoy something 
I remember the, the reason I found this book was when I walked into Parnassus and I said, I want a book that's fun and I love essay driven books. And they put that in my hands. They gave you that? They did. For fun? Okay. Yes. I loved this book, but it's a doozy. It's so funny. I remember how she can make you laugh and cry on the same page. Yes. And just this week, I was thinking of the story she told about her friend who had been burned in a fire and just how heart-wrenching oh. it was. And I must remember the sad parts because <laughs> I'm surprised <laughs> they gave it to you for being fun. But I do remember that she covers the range of human experience, the good and the bad. I think they may have put that in my hands because I, I believe I just read Heating and Cooling and I love oh. that as well. So that could have been a connection there. One of the sorrows of my fall was that I was driving away from Nashville about the same time Beth Ann Fennelly was doing her book talk at Parnassus oh, because I loved that book and I would have loved to hear her. You didn't go to that, did you? I didn't get to. I would have loved to. Erin, I think it's really interesting how something I loved about Tiny Beautiful Things is the way that Strayed says that even though she's writing as an advice columnist, she's not actually trying to tell people what they should do. I remember she says in the book that what she's trying to do is show them a third way, like something, another option they have in the situation by either showing them a perspective that those are writing to her can't see for themselves or point to deeper issues going on in their life or situation that their letter to her hints at, but doesn't explicitly say. So instead of saying, oh, well, this is happening, so obviously you should fill in the blank, she takes things in a direction that I didn't expect as a reader. And I just found that fascinating and really touching reading. Oh, I love that. And I can definitely see it. She doesn't position herself as you know, a doctor, an expert, just prescribing the solution. She definitely talks to the person like they were family or something, you know, sometimes laughing with them or sometimes calling them out. And it's, it's much more warm than I would think of uh, an advice call normally being. Yeah. And it goes right along with what you were saying about Yankowski's book about how you really like to go into other people's experience. Very much. Yes. Tell me about your third favorite. Okay. I recently read Jenny Moon and it's so recent that I, I almost felt silly putting it here, but it was so important to me. I couldn't imagine leaving it off. It had been on my list for a long time. And I'm not sure if maybe one reason I waited is that I, I do deal with trauma so much. You know, I wondered if they'd handle it right and if it would really do it justice. And I really believed that he did. This story is about a teenage girl who's been adopted from foster care and she's autistic and it's from her perspective. And the narration I thought was brilliant. It was so much fun to be in her head and for it to show the way that trauma can drive the way that you're experiencing the world around you. I thought it did it absolute justice and when I was finished, I felt like I couldn't move on. Like it would be disrespectful to Jenny. <laughs> I couldn't stop thinking about her. I absolutely loved it. I also loved how it addressed something really important, but it didn't feel heavy when it was over. Erin, I wondered if you were going to say that you were hesitant to read this because it might feel too close to home for you because of the subject matter. Is that a concern when you're choosing books to read? It usually is. So I'm a four on the Enneagram. I don't need any help being melancholy. <laughs> Easy for me to feel all the things and to feel heavy all by myself. And there are plenty of things out there that feel sad, 
but this one didn't. I think it's because I was rooting for her so much. I was excited for her. Gosh, it's still so hard. So maybe that seems wild that it would be that way. I was just on her side and it felt like the book wanted her to be understood. And that was exciting to me. When I was finished, I've, I've been off social media for a while now off of all of it. And this was the first time I wished I had it because I wanted to tell people about it right away. Oh, that's such a good sign. You use the word respectful. So if you feel like the book is respectful to the subject that matters to you, you can read about it. Yes, it didn't feel like it was dramatic for the sake of being dramatic. It felt like it just wanted to let us be inside the mind of someone who's holding this. And it felt really appropriate. Maybe to someone who's not familiar with this, it would seem extreme because it is a really outlandish situation, but it's actually not very extreme for foster care. Um, So I don't think it surprised me. It felt more exciting that we were giving her a voice. Erin, tell me about a book that was not for you. Okay, so I mentioned that I've really wanted to move away from some nonfiction that just demanded a lot of me and into some that felt fun. And so I I tried a couple different things. I thought I was going to love David Sedaris. I wanted to laugh. I wanted humor, but I don't speak fluent sarcasm and it just didn't land with me. Too sharp an edge? Oh, too sharp an edge. Yes. I really wanted to. I read Squirrel Seeks Chipmunk. I thought it was going to be great. I wanted to love it, but I think the people around me I shared it with loved it much more than me. It just got annoying to me, I think. <laughs> annoying is not a good word to use about a book. Oh, so I realize it's satire, but it felt cynical. And I, I guess that's his style, Ooh, but okay. I didn't love it. Cynical is not for you. Nope. That's good to know because David Sedaris has been a favorite on the podcast and now he's one you don't like. And I think it's really good for readers to hear that finding the right book means finding the right book for you. Exactly. And I think when I started looking for fun, I didn't realize that could mean so many different things. And that definitely wasn't the right fit for me. I am really interested in parsing what you mean by fun. We'll get there. First, tell me what you're reading now. So I have more data points to draw from just to sound totally nerdy for a second. (laughs) So I recently finished The Storied Life of A.J. Fickery. And Uh I know that that's been well-loved across the board, but that was another home run for me that did feel fun. I just smiled. I loved it. And now the ones I'm in the middle of, I usually kind of have a spectrum of different genres. So I still like to have things that challenge me and make me think, Right now, uh, I'm reading Ruthless Trust by Brennan Manning, and I think it's one of his best works. It kind of reminds me of A.W. Tozer or the C.S. Lewis that I love. You know, it's still really challenging, but it's, it's refreshing, so it doesn't ring me out either. Really enlightening. The second one I'm reading right now is Tracks by Robin Davidson about her journey across the Australian outback. So once again, gosh, I love a book that presents you with something crazy that you could do that's unconventional, but actually possible. Several years ago, I rode my bicycle across the country twice. So I love a challenge that I think I could actually make happen. That's really fun. Unconventional, but actually possible. Yes, actually possible. So something that the average person just would not even consider doing, (laughs) but that you could do, and I will take it. (laughs) All right, let's talk about a crazy challenge, Erin. You want to read more fiction, but 
Most of the books you gave me were nonfiction. So let's step back and see what we've got here. You loved The Sacred Year by Michael Yankoski, Jenny Moon by Benjamin Ludwig, and Tiny Beautiful Things by Cheryl Strayed. Yes. You're wanting to have more fun with reading and read more novels in the year ahead. And I love how it was nonfiction that pulled you into reading and you're aware of that, especially in doing this reading with your son, you've realized that you want more play and more whimsy in your reading life. So what I'd love to hear is, what does fun mean to you? Like, can you tell me about a fun reading experience you've had recently? This is still nonfiction, which kind of <laughs> pains me because I really want to prove that I can have fun with fiction. I'm dying to get further into it and lean further into it. But one other nonfiction that I would absolutely define as a fun experience for me was At Home in the World by Tish Oxenreiter. This is a book about when she took her family on a trip around the world living location independent for a whole school year. So with three children, they spent the year going west, following the sun, starting in Asia, going through Australia and Africa and Europe and coming back. This was one of the first ones as well that was nonfiction, but that I realized I could just enjoy. I loved travel. I loved thinking about if we could make it happen. So it wasn't just vicarious. It seemed possible. It was light, but not wasted. It didn't feel redundant. It was just delightful. And that felt fun for me. When I think of words like play and whimsy, sometimes my mind goes to books that might be shelved in the middle grade section of the bookstore or library. Are those for you or are those not for you? Because you haven't mentioned anything in that category. I don't think I've ventured very far into it at all. I'm not opposed, but I can't pull from very much on it. I think the closest I've gotten, and I still don't think this is even considered YA like her other stuff, but I read Attachments by Rainbow Rowell. Mm -hmm. That was fun too. I loved it. You know, it's a look at an IT guy who manages people's email security and he finds himself watching this conversation between two girls in the office. Their banter kind of reminds me of like Gilmore Girls, maybe. It was just smart and fast, which I'm not good at, but I will watch it all day long. It was fun. I laughed and just tore right through it. But I think that's the closest I've gotten to anything that people might say is YA. Or at least that a lot of her other books are, will fall in that category. Well, that's helpful. That does give me more of an idea of what fun might look like for you. Now, are you serious, Erin, when you say you think you will enjoy reading books that are whimsical? Because some people love them and some people get annoyed really quickly. I think for some people, the line between whimsy and schmaltz is too often breached. I like it when authors play with words. And when I was younger, I remember that The Phantom Tollbooth was my first favorite as a young, young reader. And so that was fun. I don't think as an adult that would keep me motivated enough. But to do something where you're playing with words and language along with a great plot and great characters is totally worth it. Okay, so you like it when authors play with words and language. Great plot, great characters. There's a new book out that does this really, really well, but I think it might be too much for you. It's too, it was too much for me. I think it's too much for a lot of readers. I will tell okay. you, it's called Kill the Farm Boy. It just came out in late 2018. It's by Delilah Dawson and Kevin Hearn. I am finding that readers either love this or they'll hate it. They're totally playing off fantasy tropes 
and classic mm. fairy tales. I don't think I would like it. Right. I don't think so either. Other readers might, but it's about a young man who goes on an adventure quest and it is just packed full of puns and plays on words and references to books within books. And if that strikes your fancy, if you're listening, kill the farm boy, pick it up. But I do think it's a little too much for you. It's like the Phantom Tollbooth meets Terry Pratchett meets Ursula Le Guin, but like times 10. I don't love puns. It's possible that the word whimsy might have been misleading. (laughs) That's what we're trying to suss out. Right. I don't want gimmicky. I want people who are fully alive, like just going to jump in a puddle because you can You're just eating it up, relishing the present moment. Yeah, I just want to see people fully present in life and just amazed at it. I I don't think I could take it all the time, but I'm craving it in some doses. Have you read Eleanor Oliphant is Completely Fine by Gail Honeyman? I'm in it right now. That's the other book. Well, how are you liking it? And what made me think it might be right for you, and you can tell me how it's going, is that it's a book in which a character who's been through trauma really is forced by unlikely events and warm-hearted people who were right there all along, but she wasn't present to them, is really forced to wake up to her own life and assume agency of it in a way that she hasn't been required to do in the past. I'm really loving it. It's more fun to me than maybe a man called Uva. I I like her quirks better and it feels like it has a little more drive. It is really fun. It's a fun perspective on that one as well, hearing the way she thinks about things. I wouldn't say that it's one that I'm going to rave about, but I'm definitely enjoying it. All right. We're going to start whimsical and get less so. Okay. That works. Okay. What do you know about the unlikely pilgrimage of Harold Fry by Rachel Joyce? I have a sample downloaded. It's definitely on my list. That's a good sign. I also thought about The Music Shop, also by Rachel Joyce, but because of what you said about crazy challenges, I think this could be a good place to start for you. Perfect. That's always intriguing. (laughs) This is the story of a man who is prompted to wake up to his own life. And what gets the ball rolling is he receives a letter from a woman that he hasn't been in contact with for over 20 years. And She says that she's dying and she wants to say goodbye. And he takes a look around him, sees that this life he's living, that he's been more or less willing to put up with for a while, actually, in light of the current situation, is something that he has no problem saying goodbye to. So he sets out on his unlikely pilgrimage. And without doing really any modicum of preparation or planning, he walks out the door to walk 600 miles to go see his old friend in person. Along the way, you learn about the marriage he's been in for a long time and his relationship with his son. What pushes the whimsy quotient a little higher here is that he meets all these characters on his journey who all help him in a small way or sometimes who he can help. And he becomes a little bit of a celebrity because you're not the only one fascinated by the story of people embarking on crazy challenges. What do you think? That sounds good. I love the sense of spontaneity and I always love a good road trip. So, (laughs) okay. The second book I have in mind is an old one. You haven't mentioned any book this old, but I do like the way that by changing location, the characters in this book completely change their point of view. And it's The Enchanted April by Elizabeth von Arnhem. Do you know this one? 
No, I've never heard of it. It sounds interesting. Okay. I wonder if you've encountered the trope without really realizing it. So this was written in 1922. It's the story of four women who are brought together by a classified ad. The ad is seeking a tenant for an Italian castle. It's called San Salvatore. And one woman sees the ad. She finds a partner in crime because if they cobble together their resources, it will decrease the cost. But then two become four. And on the last day of March, these four women set out by train to inhabit this castle. The only real thing they have in common is that they are all vaguely disappointed with their lives at the moment. And they just want to get away. And I think it's so interesting that this was in 1922. It feels a lot more modern and relatable than I would have expected as a 2019 reader. And I do like that about it. It takes the book a little while to get going. I think if you don't know about the plot going in, you can think, what what are we after here about between page 100 and 150? But what you come to see is that by getting away from the vaguely unsatisfying entrapments of their regular lives, especially their relationships, they get this fresh outlook on life and they are not the only ones affected. You said that you like stories about people who do things that are unconventional, but actually possible. I'm thinking this was a lot more unconventional and a lot more seemingly impossible in 1922. But just reading about how these women turn their lives upside down because of a classified ad and go to Italy to inhabit a castle, I think this is a story where you will be compelled to really root for these women and their crazy challenge. What do you think? It sounds good to me. You know, I don't love a book that takes a while to pick up, but knowing, like you said, about the plot and what's forming will definitely keep me going. I love their, again, spontaneity, just to kind of sign off of normal life and just take it and run with it. It sounds entertaining, I think. Once it gets rolling, I I think I'll be on the edge of my seat trying to figure out what they're up to. When you talked about people waking up to their own lives, one of the books that sprung immediately to mind was published in 1938. Do you feel like you want a book that stands the test of time or you want something a little more modern? I prefer modern, but I'm happy to consider either one. For your final book, okay, I'm looking for something contemporary. I'm looking for something about characters coming to live a life that is more satisfying to them. Do you like the idea of a contemporary family drama or a contemporary family drama with a little bit of a magical element. Oh my. Whichever one is less melodramatic. Less melodramatic. That says a lot about your reading taste. You know, I'll definitely take a page turner, but I don't like it when people are, you know, exaggerating and over the top and making something more than it is in regular life. And I don't think I enjoy that on a page either. (laughs) Erin, what do you know about The Family Man by Eleanor Lippmann? I don't know anything about it. Okay. I just started reading Eleanor Lippmann, who was recommended to me a couple of years ago as an author who was just plain fun. I've listened to her books on audiobook in the car on solo road trips. And I've also just like sat down on the couch and read them in two days when I wanted an enjoyable escape. Am I on the right track? Yes. I like the sound of that. These are family dramas about people who could be real in actual situations. 
The one I have in mind for you, although it was hard for me to choose because there are several that I think you would enjoy, but the one I have in mind for you is called The Family Man. And it was enthusiastically recommended to me by a bookseller at Rake Straw Books in California, who I spotted on the staff table and said, oh, I just started reading her last year. And he said, oh, this one's my favorite. <laughs> the plot line is something that you would be very surprised if it happened to your best friend, but it's possible because of a sad event, a Manhattan attorney who's older, who's retired now, becomes reconnected with his ex-wife's now adult daughter. When they were married, he adopted her and they had a wonderful relationship back when she was five. But after they divorced, he saw her less and less and then not at all. And it wasn't what he wanted, but it's what happened because he didn't, as he now sees in hindsight, push for that relationship like he wished he had. So a couple of things happen that are a little bit zany, but not too far-fetched, which is really fun to read about. So this Manhattan lawyer reconnects with his daughter, who's a struggling actress who gets hired for a job that is very interesting and fun to read about. He reconnects with his ex-wife in ways that are a little bit ridiculous, but I don't think too over the top for you. And he also meets someone and starts to fall in love. That's the plot line that really has the charm factor that I think you'll enjoy reading about. Mm. But all these plot lines are strong. There's not a sagging point in the story and they come together in a really fun way. So it's warm and funny and has a lot of heart to it. It's not a very serious novel dealing with serious issues on the surface, like you say that you often read about in nonfiction books, but it is an easy to read novel that does have some real depth to it. And did I say it's fun? It's fun to read. How does that sound? That sounds wonderful. The way that you described the experience sounds exactly how I want to feel when I'm reading these days. And I can't wait. That one, that one really has my attention. I'm happy to hear it. We discussed The Enchanted April by Elizabeth von Arnhem. The Unlikely Pilgrimage of Harold Fry by Rachel Joyce, and The Family Man by Eleanor Lippmann. Of those three books, what do you think you'll read next? I think the one that's calling my name the most is The Family Man. I love the way that you described it, how warm it is, how fun it is, that there's not a sagging part of the plot. I think it would really keep my attention and my enthusiasm really well. Well, I can't wait to hear what you think. Thank you so much for talking books with me today. Oh, thank you for having me. It's been so much fun. Hey, readers, I hope you enjoyed my discussion with Erin, and I'd love to hear what you think she should read next. That page is at whatshouldireadnextpodcast.com slash 167. That's 167. And it's where you can see the full list of titles we talked about today. Readers, it's not too late to sign up to join our new book school starting on Wednesday, January 16th. That's a name I just used for my own sake as I was developing the syllabus because I'm a giant nerd and like the idea of going back to school, but it has stuck. You can join anytime, but live sessions do begin on Wednesday, January 16th. This weekly course covers six essentials for your reading life, including topics like how I vet books and decide what to read next, the three questions to ask yourself to write a review about anything, and how to talk about books so your fellow readers will listen. It's like going back to school in the best bookish way possible. This is going to be a regular weekly course that lasts six weeks. We're beginning January 16th, and we'd love for you to join us. This course is included with your book club membership 
membership that's for current and new members. To get more details and sign up, go to modernmrsdarcy.com slash book dash school. That's modernmrsdarcy.com slash book dash school. Hope to see you there. It's so good to be among people who are reading and who are learning to read better together. Next week, I'm sitting down with regular reader Tara Nichols, who has set a bold challenge for herself in 2019, reading 100 books, each published in a different year between 1920 and 2019. As you can imagine, there are very few publication dates I know off the top of my head. So this episode required more than a little extra research so I could recommend great books to Tara. And honestly, I enjoyed every second of it. Here's a sneak peek. One of the things I'm really excited about is just to see how literature has kind of changed in the last hundred years. I'm not reading in order, so I'm I'm hoping that I can still kind of see these patterns. I'm also really excited just to read these books that I've been wanting to read for a really long time and just haven't gotten to because maybe they're not as shiny and pretty as some of the new books that come out. Some of these books have remained for a really long time, but I just haven't gotten to them. Subscribe now so you don't miss next week's episode in Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and more. We will see you next week. If you're on Twitter, let me know there at Ann Bogle. That is Ann with an E, B is in books, O-G-E-L. Tag us on Instagram to share what you are reading. You can find me there at What Should I Read Next and at Ann Bogle. Our newsletter subscribers are the first to know all the What Should I Read Next news and happenings. If you are not on the list, you can fix that now by visiting whatshouldireadnextpodcast.com slash newsletter to sign up for our free weekly delivery. Thanks to the people who make the show happen. What Should I Read Next is produced by Brenna Frederick with sound design by Kellen Pekacek. Readers, that's it for this episode. Thanks so much for listening. And as Reiner Maria Roca said, ah, how good it is to be among people who are reading. Happy reading, everyone. <laughs>